0: You know, one thought I ha- I haven't done this yet, but I had this image one day of um, I want to I have a Sunday where we hand out permission slips, you know, oh, where wouldn't it be neat, like in your bulletin or, in, you know, the d- desk or wherever people come in and get stuff to basically hand out a blank permission slip. You know, when you were a kid, you know, you had a permission slip to yeah. go on a field trip or, but to say like, you know, the elder team has signed on the bottom, here's a permission slip for you. You have our permission to go try something.
1: Hey, welcome to the Forge America missional podcast. I'm your host Roland Smith, and uh, this is our interview edition uh, of the podcast and really happy to have a really good friend and hub leader, uh, John Rittner on with us from Hollywood, California. He is our Hollywood pastor for the Forge tribe. How's it going on the West Coast dude?
0: Good man. It's great to be out here. I'm still the least Hollywood pastor in all of Hollywood, I can tell you that. But it's fun to fun to be with you. At least the weather's warm and and uh yeah, enjoying the West Coast.
1: But we do like to think that we do have a Hollywood pastor because <laughs> it gives us a little bit of that kind of movie star-esque thing for Forge. You know?
0: <laughs> I you mean know. we've got right.
1: we've got like Alan Hirsch working in Australia, and then we got Rittner, take you know. Keeping the film industry in check, so you know, <laughs> that's a, I love it. Yeah. Well, hey, um, really good reason for having you on today is that you have a book that just dropped uh, out of Hundred Movements Publishing, and um, I love the title, Positively Irritating, which I think you're going to sell a few copies just off the, <laughs> just off the <laughs> title. Um, because it, it, really people are irritated with the church a lot of the time. So, you know, it, it yeah. kind of speaks to, a, there's yeah. a metaphor that works there a lot. So just give me, um, give me a little bit like the elevator pitch on the book, uh, what it's about, uh, I know you've got these four phases that you kind of mm-hmm. frame. We'll kind of talk through some of those, uh, and then give a little bit about like why you wanted to write it.
0: Yeah, you know, kind of my, my elevator pitch, and, and the reason we titled it Positively Irritating is uh, years ago, I, I learned um, kind of this uh, analogy that is based in science that, you know, if you're at the beach one day, and a piece of sand blows into your eye, the human eye as a, an organism goes through a natural defensive response that begins to, you know, create tears and water and irritation, and you begin to rub your eye and Uh, The whole goal is to get this foreign irritant out of your eye, because if you don't, what will happen is that the sand will actually create um, an an infection, and that infection could actually get worse to the point of of causing blindness. And so uh, the organism's response to an irritant is to flush it out, eliminate it so that it doesn't do damage. And yet that same irritant, that same grain of sand, if it embeds itself inside of an oyster out in the water it will similarly create an, an experience inside the oyster that is an irritation. It will actually uh, cause uh, a scratch on the surface of the of the inner membrane inside the oyster. But what the oyster will do, instead of trying to flush it out and eliminate it, the oyster will actually embrace it. And it will begin to create this substance that, that's called nacre, or we think of as kind of like that mother of pearl, um, shiny, shimmery substance that is very strong. And it'll coat a grain of sand over and over and over again with these layers in order to isolate it, but in doing so, it actually creates something of beauty and value in the world. And so it, it has a positive response to the irritant rather than kind of a negative response. And so as I thought about that analogy, it made me realize that, you know, the it's not the irritant that's the issue. It's the response of the organism to the irritant. And that the organism's response actually reveals the nature of the organism. Is it one that is able to embrace and and um, handle change and, and innovate and make beauty? Or is it one that is simply based on status quo, keeping things the same, not adapting, and, and really protecting itself from any perceived threats? And so that metaphor had been in my mind for years. And then I began to realize more and more that the church is now being surrounded by more and more of these irritants. And so my initial kind of call was to write a book around the irritant of post-Christianity based on my journey, which I can share about, of kind of going to post-Christian Europe and seeing the cultural change. But then when COVID was happening and we were in kind of the final processes of rewrites with this book, it just became another example of an irritant that the church was facing. And I was amazed to see the two different responses by Organisms by church, you know, the church body, which is not an organization, it's an organism based on that metaphor of a body. And how some were basically viewing COVID as a threat um, and, you know, refusing to change and innovate and adapt and saying, how do we just keep doing the same thing? Whereas others were coming around the reality of COVID and creating something beautiful in the world and innovating and adapting in a way that actually offered something better not just to the church but to the world around it and so i thought man let's let's tie in even the irritation of COVID into this book uh because that's what's on people's mind right now as as it gets released yeah so what do
1: you what do you think are the uh reasons that um some people might see an irritation as a, you know, something to be defensive against, and some people will see it as, okay, what kind of opportunities exist in this? Because we're talking about kind of like liminality also, right? It's like, you, you get in this tense place, and it's like, you can either see an opportunity to work out of it, or, you know, it can be totally destructive to everything that you're doing.
0: Yeah, I think part of it is, um, over time, the nature of organizations tend to change. And so organizations that's, that are young and fresh and entrepreneurial and innovative in their early days, uh, the more they grow and mature, the easier it is to kind of concretize and become hardened and to create systems that uh, don't allow them to adapt and flex. And so the irony is the early church, the the pre-Christendom church that existed in a very pluralistic um, you know, culture with many different gods and faced a lot of adversity and irritation. I mean, the irritation is putting it mildly as they were being literally persecuted and killed for their faith. They had this, this innovative apostolic um, spirit that was able to adapt and, and create systems and structures that were nimble and flexible and didn't have any power or prestige or, or you know, prominence in society. But again, as, as Forge, you know, people know, we talk a lot about kind of the, the change that happened with Constantine in 300, 312 AD and Council of Nicaea and how over time that that adaptive organization became much more of a, went from movement to kind of creating monuments to itself, whether it be through buildings or through formal liturgy or even through the uh, the, the formalizing of the priesthood into a very narrow group of people. And I think the more you consolidate power into the hands of a few, the, the more resistance there is to actually changing the status quo, because there are people who have a lot invested in it. We see this even in America now with politics, right? I mean, the average person agrees that the political system is broken, whether it's financial giving to, you know, super PACs and organizations, or whether it's uh, no term limits, you know, for Supreme, you know, all sorts of different things. And yet the people who actually have the power are the ones who are least motivated to change it because they, they enjoy the status quo. And so I think that's what's happening a lot in American churches is, you know, you have leaders who don't really have much to benefit from changing. And then you have a younger generation that has everything to gain by by wanting to change because they want to see the world change. They want also their, their friends who will never come into a church uh, to have exposure to the life of Jesus, and they know the old way is not working. And so Um, You know, I think one of the healthiest things churches can do is keep that intergenerational balance. I mean, I I talk in my book a little bit about if you're an older leader, meaning 50 and above, you have got to have a discipleship group of younger men. You know, if you're male, younger women or mixed gender group, whatever's appropriate for you, but you've got to have that. 18 to 25-year-old group in your life, not just that you're investing in, but that you're asking questions of. You're saying, hey, how are you spending your time? Or what are the new technologies? Or what are people wrestling with right now in terms of anxiety or depression or real-life challenges? And you have to listen really well to them in order to kind of stay on the leading edge of what's going on with our culture because, you know, a lot of the culture is being shaped by the next generation, um, especially in the world of technology and pop culture and and arts and things like that. So um, I think for the older church, you, you've got to really embrace uh, the willingness to, um, to recognize that you're going to have to surrender some control. And that, you know, the other phrase I like to use for leaders is you're going to have to de yourself. You're going to have to get out of that power seat and empower others, whether it's from your pulpit and platform, or whether it's literally giving away your job to the next generation sooner. Um, but we need more of those kind of power transitions because the next generation tends to be more of that apostolic, entrepreneurial, innovative
1: generation coming along. Yeah. you're. Uh, so you have a unique voice um, in this subject matter, I think, because um, you took over a lead pastor position at Ecclesia Hollywood, uh, which is a church that was there for quite a while and had kind of been through some ups and downs, yeah. and, and you're kind of re- you know, rebuilding or really reshaping it into more of a missional community. And so, and even in the book, you go through these, these phases, um, which seem like just from me knowing a little bit of your story, they kind of mimic some of the, uh, experiments and the things that you've been doing and traveling through. So, you know, if you were talking to someone that kind of bid into or bought into the, uh, You know the irritations that are going Mm -hmm. on now you know they came to you and they said hey john i've got a piece of sand in my eye what do i do with my church um you know what are what are some of the things that you'd highlight maybe out of the book or out of your journey at ecclesia
0: yeah yeah i think the first key is to understand kind of the nature of the irritant to understand what it is that's actually going on not just on the surface level um but to go deeper into the the actual kind of paradigms that are that are changing, and so for for me in my journey, you know that irritation came in years eight, nine, and ten of working at a megachurch in um, you know in the Bible Belt in Virginia, uh, and seeing this church grow rapidly and and kind of hitting all the metrics that the church growth movement was celebrating, whether it's the you know the the multi million dollar worship facility or the thousands of people on the Sunday morning or sixty people on staff or you know, a lot of conversions. I mean, all these sorts of things that everyone was excited about, and yet beginning to recognize that um, kind of the paradigm that we are operating out of where Sunday morning was the key component of church life and the way you brought people into your community through Sunday morning, I just began to realize I wasn't connecting with more of this, um, you know, what people were giving language to at the nuns and duns, you know, those who were done with church, they had, they had been wounded by it and didn't want to go back. And then they were raising up the next generation of of no religious affiliation or sometimes called the nuns. And so the nuns and duns were all around the city and were never going to come to us. Uh, And I began to realize, you know, something is wrong with the way we're doing church if we have no approach or strategy that will reach a growing population in our community. And so for us, it meant going to Europe and saying, let's go learn about the paradigm of post-Christianity. Let's learn about the worldview, the the narratives, the ethics, the, the un, you know, what are the cultural elements that um, are part of this new reality so that we can better contextualize the church and contextualize the gospel to connect with that. And so I think the first thing I would say to any church leader who's out there thinking Hey, I know what we're doing isn't working, um, but we just don't know what to do. Is I think you really need to kind of do a deep dive into some of the, the paradigm shifts that are taking place culturally. You know, it's not just, oh, young people don't want to go to church anymore. There are entire philosophical worldviews um, that are radically different than, you know, what you as a leader may have grown up with 20, 30 years ago. And so I do a little bit of a, a dive into that in my book and try to talk about everything from kind of the enlightenment and romantic era and scientific revolution and stuff, but there are some great resources out there that I kind of reference in the, in the back of my book, where you can do a a deeper dive into those things. But once you kind of understand that and really get your head around, like what is changing, then you can actually begin to say, well, why don't we try some experiments that might connect with this new way of being, you know, you have to understand the context before you can start being contextual. So understand this new context And then try to imagine what would it look like to connect with these sorts of people. And part of that is going to be just spending time with them and listening, developing friendships. You know, I I know so many pastors who struggle to have deep, meaningful friendships outside of their own church community. And so if you don't have two or three people who are not followers of Jesus, that you're, you know, whether they're your golfing buddies or your basketball friends or someone, you know, from a local bar or pub or, you know, whatever it is that you're interested in, find some of those relationships and just get their perceptions of church, get their perceptions of God and spirituality, find out how are they practicing spirituality outside of the traditional forms and structures that you might be familiar with. And as you begin to kind of know that story and know their reality, begin to think, well, how would Jesus engage with someone like this and how could we discuss spirituality in a way that would uh, fit their context? And so th- those are the sorts of experiments that we've been playing with out here in Ecclesia, whether it's trying to launch storytelling events at a local pub or trying to develop a co-working space for artists who aren't interested in you know, traditional church, um, working with homeless who don't feel you know, socially or economically comfortable walking into an existing church building on a Sunday. Um, and some of the experiments work. And some of them don't, but, you know, the, the ones that don't work are often just as valuable because you learn so much from them. So, you know, we, we like to try to you know, kind of celebrate that idea of experiment, learn, fail, repeat, and just keep repeating that innovative experimental cycle. So I think that's the first thing I would say is, um, is you've got to go deep enough into the paradigms to understand what's really happening before you can begin to try to experiment with some new practices that might connect.
1: Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit um, of uh, what Todd Bolsinger talks about um, and just kind of working on the next prototype, you know, Yeah uh, where, where you're always, that's kind of our job as church leaders is we're always innovating the next prototype. Some of those prototypes are going to fail. Some of them are going to work. And um, but your job is not to d- maybe design even for 20 years. It's what's the next thing? What's our next right step that we can take? Um, and yeah. so those experiments sometimes will, you know, reveal something that becomes movemental, you know, in the community or or in the community
0: around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's the it's not the first idea. It's usually the second, third, fourth idea that comes after that first bad idea that usually becomes the thing that works. You know, the old idea that. Um, you know, was it Thomas Edison, you know, figured out a thousand ways to not invent the light bulb before he yeah. actually invented the light bulb. Uh, right. But each of those other iterations were essential because he had to, you know, he had to figure out what the right answer was going to be in the long run.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And I got, I got to participate a little bit in one of your experiments, which was uh, when I was out there for a church service one Sunday and and you let me sit in with, I guess it was some contextual neighborhood yeah. gatherings. Um, so church service let out we went into the big kind of fellowship hall thing and sat in circles. Um, and I sat with one geographical group as they just kind of brainstormed and spitballed, how could we reach our neighbors and love our neighbors, yeah. but, you know? And it was fascinating to just see that released to people as opposed to sitting in a staff room with staff and like, how are we gonna do this program, you
0: know? Yeah, that's, you know, one of the hardest things about COVID is we we were getting so much momentum with that activity. We we were calling it a a missional imagination workshop and we were doing Mm -hmm. them monthly uh, and we would basically shorten our worship time down uh, and then uh, go. even the kids had extra childcare so we didn't have to worry about kids. Uh, and then we added this extra hour of workshop time where you gathered in small groups with people who were in your geographic area, which by the way, is a challenge in itself in LA because a lot of our community didn't know who lived in their geographic area because the history, our history as more of an attractional Sunday-centric church was people drove from all over LA to Hollywood to find people who were in the industry who resonated with their spiritual journey and their love for you know creativity and arts. And so now um, that we're actually trying to think more about neighborhood engagement and connecting people seven days a week to work side by side that's a a new muscle for people to figure out well who actually lives near me that i would engage with so that was part of our challenges and then putting them in a room and saying now let's actually have them develop the muscles of living as missionaries so you know did they know how to discern what's good news to your neighbor can they come up with three tanville ways to you know to bless others this week can they we did a whole thing on asking good questions you know, um, that, you know, we, we talked about the idea that like curiosity is an incredible expression of love in a, in a culture of isolation. And so in a place like L.A., everyone feels so lonely and isolated. When you encounter someone, it's often overwhelming how much they talk at you, you know. And so if you embrace that and ask good questions and don't need to make it about you um, and don't need to play even the Hollywood networking game of, you know, what can you do for me to advance my career but do you know how to ask good, meaningful questions that might unlock that person's heart a little bit, that might give you a little snapshot of what's going on? And so even in the book, one of my appendixes, I said, you know, I think this question asking skill is so important. I just took that entire missional workshop um, and I included it in the back of the book so that someone could kind of see what, what is an example of something they might do. You know, the other one that, that always sticks out with me is we, we broke into teams and we created a, a scenario where your team was living in a biodome. You know, remember that old, the 1980s, there was that that Pauly Shore movie, but there's just giant glass bubble, right? And so you put people in there and you create this alternative civilization and you try to see how they get along. And so we said, imagine you were going into a biodome as a group of of believers, the followers of Jesus, how would you form a church? You know, and and it was amazing because once you get out of your everyday experience and you think about a new world, you realize, well, we probably wouldn't start building a building. That would be crazy, you know, Um, and we started realizing that, you know, there would be a uh, such an emphasis on how do we make this new world a better place? Because it's literally a new world that needs to be cultivated, almost kind of like Adam and Eve, you know, Uh, and so that that thought experiment, which is kind of what we called it, really helped people go, oh, my gosh, wow, this is so different than how I view being a Christian in L.A., Um, How could I do this, you know? And so uh, that biodome experiment is in the book as well. It's just kind of something you could do with a small team to get them thinking about missional living and contextual church outside of the structures that, you know, kind of lock our brains into set ways. So yeah, I love that you got to be there that day and just dove right in with, with that community.
1: Yeah, I actually wanted to come back to the event, you know, and kind of see how it went because they were gonna do a they were gonna do a thing in a park, you know, and I yeah, just you know,
0: that was our last Sunday before COVID this year was pop yeah. we called it pop-up church Sunday. Yeah. And it was this idea of, you know, uh, I think we had eight different pop-up expressions of church around the city, and church not meaning worship, but church meaning, you know, faith, community, and mission interacting and so yeah there were neighborhood cleanups there was teams that served marathon runners uh mm-hmm. there, there were parks of you know parties in the parks with book distribution for kids and a lot of really fun ideas and who would have thought that, that was actually the last sunday that we were all going to be t- together so to speak and yet we are actually yeah. dispersed you know
1: yeah um what one of your phase three in your book is creating a culture of innovation so just this expectation that innovation is something that your community is always doing. And it's like kind of always changing, always on the move. People don't need to get freaked out by it. Um, and, um, I, you know, I really like that idea, especially in light of COVID right now, uh, because it seems like the the church communities that have been a little bit more innovative, aren't having as hard a time, as Mm. churches that were very, very Sunday-centric. And that's not to be overly critical of people or, or Sunday worship gatherings or anything like that. But I guess it kind of goes to organizing principles. Like if you have this kind of missional, outward, innovative organizing principle as a community, it's a lot easier to take on something like COVID or whatever we don't know about next year or the next year or the next year, right? Yeah. And so this culture cultural um foundation of innovation becomes something that that provides sustainability for your church right yeah
0: yeah and if if your organization has been one in which all the people as part of it just assume that power is consolidated in the hands of a few and their job is to come and just you know wait to be told what to do so to speak or if all of the energy is is towards the top of the pyramid so to speak to, you know, serving and lifting up the people who are on the platform or, you know, the brand of the church, then when you get to this sort of a, a chaotic time where the platform is irrelevant and the brand is you know, no one can kind of come experience the brand, none of those people have ever been encouraged to have any creativity or, or sense of innovation. And they don't realize that they actually could be doing things. And so, you know, if you the, the goal, I think, of a leader is to push that power out from your hands into everyone else's hands, you know? I mean, to, mm-hmm. to kind of get all the, the power and resources out to the edges where the experimentation is going to happen and to, again, decenter all of those sorts of resources. So when a situation like this arises, you don't just have a staff of 10 people or 50 people in a room trying to be innovative, but you've got a community of 200 or 1,000 who all think to themselves, well, I have permission to think creatively and, and my ideas matter. And what I do will not be, you know, crushed by an elder board who says you didn't fill out the right paperwork. You know, we've all been there, but instead we'll be celebrated. And, you know, who knows something you do might, you might be up on, on stage next Sunday being championed in front of the whole community is like, man, look what Roland and Katie are doing. Isn't this amazing? You know, thank you guys for leading us into mission. And that's part of what I think we've tried to do in our cultural kind of storytelling is to continue to bring up people who are innovating, experimenting, trying new things, even if they fail and champion them, you know, to use the exponential language, kind of make them into heroes, you know, to do some Mm -hmm. hero making um, so that our community all thinks like, wow, that's a, that's a cool story. I want to have a story like that too, you know? Um, And and one of the ways I knew our church was tipping was, you know, when I would give a message and then after my message, I would bring someone up from our forge cohort to tell a story of how they were trying to live as a missionary um, and they would talk for about 10 minutes and then you know i'd say oh jeff that was fantastic thanks for sharing your story that's such an encouragement and we'd have a couple more songs and finish our liturgy and then at the at the end of the message i would or the service i'd come stand in front like i always do to you know talk to anyone who might want to talk to me or to offer prayer mm-hmm. and i would just be standing by myself and i remember that one day i looked over to my right and jeff had a line of five people in front of them yeah and th- and all these artists and actors wanted to talk to Jeff about how he was living out his faith as an actor in an acting studio. They didn't want to come talk to me, the ordained pastor, you know, that ordinary yeah. person was more compelling to them. And I thought, that's it. That's what we're looking for. You know, yeah. I want the line to be forming over there, not in front of me. Uh, and I, and I think so if you, if you find ways to create that culture, um then in these moments that require innovation you're 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 way ahead of other organizations
1: yeah it rem- that reminds me of uh, i think uh, mike frost when he was pastoring his church uh, small boat big sea yeah they would they would bring he talks about bringing someone up in front every sunday and praying over them as a missionary being sent yeah. you know and that they did that consistently And so those kinds of things um that are are huge culture builders right i mean those are the things that that start paradigmatically kind of shifting uh what sunday is all about
0: i think it was frosty's frosty's practice of doing that that gave me the idea that whenever we do a baptism now um you know we'll baptize a person in our service and then um when the service is over and since we do immersion baptism, they have to go dry off, right? And kind of usually mm-hmm. get changed and kind of look presentable again. So at yeah. the end of the service, we'll bring them back during the benediction and, and we'll have them come up front and we'll commission them as a missionary. And we'll ask them, Hey, you know, what are your first, second, and third places? Where are the places you live, work and play mm-hmm. and create, um, tell us about those spaces. And then let's pray for you as a missionary. So, you know, the same day, that you are celebrating your conversion, you're also celebrating this commission to be a missionary, right? You know, because mm-hmm. as, as Alan says, every summons to Jesus is also ascending to the world. And so, you know, Mike's idea of doing that on a regular basis of making every believer into a missionary, I thought, man, let's just start like that. You know, let's just yeah. get that vision out there. The day that we celebrate your presence in the kingdom, we also recognize you have a calling to fulfill too.
1: Yeah, we, uh, yeah. I mean, it's a self-critique <laughs> to, <laughs> on myself, too, but it's like we, we uh, you know, for the longest time, it's just, it's been, uh, you reach a point of conversion for a person, mm-hmm. and then somehow the missional identity part of that and the discipleship part of that are just kind of left to them. It's like, okay, n- now you're Christian, <laughs> somehow go and be live like a christian and somehow go and be a disciple you know yeah and uh, we kind of uh we forget maybe the two most important things you know post salvation
0: uh, well and that's fun. you know roland you and i have, have sat in many a room and watched um you know deb hirsch draw on a whiteboard kind of the bounded set centered set and i'm sure a lot of our community is kind of familiar with that Uh, analogy. I I touch on it a little bit in my book, but that is the danger of the bounded set is there's so much emphasis on just getting you over the fence, you know, getting you into the flock. Um, And then once you're in the flock, you're safe, you're protected. And then we just expect you'll know what to do, right? You know, but um, the the centered set approach of coming alongside someone and orienting them to Jesus and walking with them individually and personally uh, is such a a more of a lifelong lifetime process that, you know, where you would actually kind of keep asking based on where this person is in their relationship to the well or to Jesus at the center, what do they need next to take the next step? Um, you know, and, and maybe it's a personal formation step. Maybe it's an outward expression step. Maybe it's a, you know, a missional engagement step, but that's an, a whole different skill than simply the bounded set, which is usually put them into a program you know, and trust the program will take care of it, you know, the kind of industrial one size fits all. So um, when you're a, an actual, like, you know, when we we're living in Europe as missionaries, there are no programs, There, there is no, there's nothing to plug them into, it's you. I mean, so there is the institutional credibility is gone. So all you have is your relational credibility as a follower of Jesus. And so they're connected to you and you alone. And so you have to be the one who kind of walks alongside them to figure out what do they need next, you know. Um, and, and what I, the reason I'm so committed to the value of that is because I believe that when someone else's spiritual formation is partially dependent on you, you become more fully dependent on God. And so there, you know, almost as if like a parent, when a parent realizes your kids are watching me, it ups your game. You realize I have to have a higher integrity than it was just me alone as a single person, you know? And so I think that idea of missional incarnational disciple making is actually the best discipleship strategy. It's the best spiritual formation strategy. Invest your life in someone else and you'll realize that you better have something to offer them or else yeah. that's going to be a short meeting when you guys get together right. for coffee.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so um, kind of wrapping up, You know, let's say someone's listening and you know, COVID is obviously the easiest uh, speck of sand to talk about mm. in our eye right now. Um, but you know, someone that is being forced a little bit forced into innovation, maybe mm, But they, yeah. but they, but they want to move that way. What would you say? Um, what, what are the tips that you would give someone, you know? I mean, I know that you do coaching and, and they can reach out to you and to forge and all kinds of things, you know, for longer term stuff. But I mean, like, what's the next best step to explore shifting into an innovative culture.
0: Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, the most sustainable way to innovate is to do it as a team and to surround yourself with some others. It can be, in fact, you mentioned Todd Walsinger, uh, he just released a second book uh, this week that I got a copy of uh, being around here in the Fuller community called uh, Tempered Resilience. And the whole second book is about the character of the leader in order that that is needed to lead this change the first book was you know all about adaptive change second book is about what does it take as a leader and i am so resonating with it because i'm going yeah this is the challenge of innovation is it often can feel very isolating and lonely and the only way that i would be able to sustain any of these um experiments or ideas is being connected to people like you the forge tribe and then even locally people in my church community who i know have my back who are excited about this who are pushing me even to kind of keep going. So I'd say you got to find, you know, to use your language, Roland, you got to find freaks like me, you know, you got to mm-hmm. find people who are kind of weirdos in the church who, who want to do things differently. And, and they, the hard thing is they may have gone into hiding if the church has not innovated over the last three, five, 10 years. Uh, they may be really on the margins. They may not want to do anything but sit in the back on a Sunday because they're afraid that if they speak up, they'll get crushed. Uh, They may actually be pioneering out in the city, outside of the walls. They may have started nonprofits or homeless shelters or, you know, working with, you know, women and kids in trafficking or building wells in Africa. Um, You know, a a lot of projects that that they are passionate about, but they couldn't find innovative, you know, permission, so to speak, within the church. And so, um, you know, I think that's often your first challenge is who can I go on this journey with? And I talk in the book a little bit about you know using APEST as a a, a form or a, a, a diagnostic test. You need some apes, you know. You need those people who live on the fringes, the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. The shepherd teachers tend to be more about maintaining structure and systems and building, and that's good. You need that, but that's there's a lot of that in the existing church. And if you're going to innovate, you have to reclaim those ape gifts, which are more about bridging and expanding. The church outward uh and so finding where those apes are and engaging them um you know one thought i have i haven't done this yet but i had this image one day of um i wanted i want to have a sunday where we hand out permission slips you know oh, where good. wouldn't it be neat like in your bulletin or in you know the d- desk or wherever people come in and get stuff to basically hand out a blank permission slip you know when you were a kid you know you had a permission slip yeah. to go on a field trip or but to say like you know, the elder team has signed on the bottom. Here's a permission slip for you. You have our permission to go try something, to go innovate, you know. And if you did something like that on a Sunday, you would have people who were so energized by that. You'd have a lot of people who are like, I don't know what this is, you know, and they would yeah. leave it on the floor. But the yeah. people who are energized, that would be the signal to you of who you want to recruit in, you know, to this kind of innovative team. And so, you know, I, I, to use the old Jim Collins language, I'd say, you know, think, who, who should be on the bus before, where does the bus go? You know, and so who are some of the people that I can recruit in that will go on this journey with me that we can begin praying together, uh, sharing ideas? And I think what you'll find is um, they will be uh, very excited to be activated, that they probably have been waiting a long time for the church to care about things that they care about. Um, yeah. And, and we, we, they will become some of your best advocates, you know, and you're going to need that sort of protection, that getting each other's back reality when you know when the pushback comes of like hey well we've never done church that way before um mm-hmm. and those are the those are the hard times in leadership the lonely times you know and so the the failure of nerve the failure of heart moments where you need to have someone around you say hey don't quit let's keep going it's worth it you know the kingdom is worth it
1: yeah and it can seem it can seem like uh it's gonna it, it does take a longer time to do that it can seem uh, it can seem like you don't want to take that path because, man, I've got to get all my elders on board and all the staff on board, and I've got to go through this process, and it's going to take six months just for us to talk through Forge or whatever curriculum yeah. you're, you're working through. But we did that at our church, and, and what I've experienced is looking in the rearview mirror is that actually passed pretty quickly, and it was really mm. – it has helped um, – you know, the mobilization speed of things now. So, you know, if we want to do something missional, we, I mean, we just launched a micro church network and yeah, yeah. the el- the elders and the staff are just like, well, of course we did because we took the time to kind of walk through stuff together and get around the table and, and learn to be innovative, you know, yeah. in the first place. So,
0: and, and it yeah. becomes then actually sustainable long-term, you know, the old, if you sure. want to go fast, go sure. alone, but if you want to go far, go with others. And so, you know, the, the goal is not just for our own personal innovative ideas, you know, to, uh, to be celebrated, but for, you know, kingdom change to take place. We want the church to be something that be, that is more resilient and adaptive as an organization. You know, we want it to create beauty in the world. We want to make some pearls that we can hand out, so to speak, and that the world will go, man, thank you for doing that. Um, you know, and for blessing us. So,
1: Yeah. Well, I have, uh, I've loved talking to you about this and we've hung out quite a bit together. Uh, Anyway, talking about this stuff online and I'm excited that you got it all on paper and uh, in between two covers, you know, (laughs) called Positively Irritating. So um, I know that you do uh, some coaching through Forge and through other avenues, if this has kind of sparked some stuff in people, like how can they get hold of you and have further conversations about it?
0: Yeah. Um, so my website is johnritner.com, uh, ritne rcom or you can email me, john at churchinhollywood.com. And um, yeah, I've got a couple different organizations like Fuller and V3 and Forge that I do um, kind of cohort coaching with. And then I've got some individuals that uh, I'm connecting with out here in LA and, and around the country who are interested in these ideas and um, kind of hoping to even, you know, put this book into a little bit of a kind of a six week online series that people could go through and that I can do some coaching around. So, yeah, I'd love to talk to anyone who's um, looking for, you know, a little bit of kind of shepherding on this journey and, and for someone to kind of help champion them as they advocate for, you know, adaptation, innovation in the local church. That's cool.
1: Yeah. And you can also uh, contact John through ForgeAmerica.com. And on our website, we've got our hubs listed and he is obviously the Hollywood pastor. So the the K- Hollywood, California hub. So, well, man, thanks for uh, spending some time with us and I appreciate your heart and your vision uh, for the church and all the work you're doing for us. Absolutely. Thanks for all. I look forward to seeing you in person again soon. All right, man. See ya.